It's a warm summer day as the sun sets in downtown Wareham, Massachusetts. Standing in front of the town's riverfront train depot, you make your way onto the platform, following the twists and the turns of the boarding ramp. Looking southeast, your eyes follow the flow of the water until you're staring down Merchant's Way into the heart of Wareham Village. Peeking through the alleyways on your right, you see glimpses of Main Street, a part of Route 6 that has historically brought seasonal visitors through the town on their way to Cape Cod. But Wareham's committed to attracting economic activity beyond that of just those passing through to the Cape. And this vision of a vibrant economy is rooted in the redevelopment of historic Wareham Village. Look ahead, and you'll see the rail tracks laid along the pavement, abutting the road and just feet from the flowing waters of the Wareham River. Curiously, you'll notice that the tracks and the road share what appears to be an elevation just feet above the water's edge. Squinting back upstream, you might be able to see the old Tremont Nail Factory, a reminder of a manufacturing history that has since passed. Continuing down the town-owned Merchant's Way, you see buildings, residential and commercial, lining the street across from the river. Some are lively, restaurants with improvised outdoor dining in response to COVID, or businesses with a steady flow of customers. Other buildings, though, are seemingly vacant, with signs of disuse and damage. This is the heart of Wareham Village. We see signs of ecological hazard and economic challenge, sure. But looking at the bigger picture, it's hard not to see the room for opportunity here. The buildings along Merchant's Way are ripe for redevelopment, sitting on parcels with a beautiful waterfront view. The river itself provides clear opportunity for public access that can improve the community's connectedness with the water, all while playing a critical role in keeping coastal hazards at bay. And Merchant's Way calls out to you with clear potential. Introduce some investment that jumpstarts economic growth, and it's easy to picture a vibrant waterfront community. With opportunities for and a commitment to action, the town is working with a SNEP network to seize this vision for Wareham Village. Over the next several episodes, we turn to the central component of the network's work with Wareham, waterfront revitalization and comprehensive redevelopment. I'm Kyle Gray, and this is the Leadership Exchange Podcast. Welcome back to what marks the halfway point of our work with Wareham throughout this leadership exchange. To this point, we've conducted two webinars focused on two key components of Wareham's redevelopment. First, green infrastructure, and most recently, resilience. We've heard from five fantastic communities with incredible stories to tell about their work on these issue areas. Last month, we were joined by Annapolis, Maryland, Hoboken, New Jersey, and New Bedford, Massachusetts, when we discussed social, economic, and environmental resilience on November 4th. We heard about the importance of the policy process, how a community needs to first come together to identify the root of a resilience problem before moving on to solutions. And once those solutions are proposed, they should be community-led and community-owned. We heard some key tips for implementing projects, from leveraging strengths, to keeping projects in the pipeline, to building on efficiencies. We also learned about the importance of equity and inclusion, and why now more than ever, social resilience should be just as important as economic or environmental. Including diverse voices into the conversation is just the starting point. These voices must also be leaders in crafting equitable and inclusive solutions. And finally, when pursuing resilience, we found that funding and financing should come from a number of different areas, and that dedicated streams of revenue can be the best way to empower a community. Thanks again to all of our guests who took part in the Resilience webinar. To hear the recording of the webinar, please visit snapnetwork.org slash past webinars. 
To hear more about Annapolis, Hoboken, and New Bedford's work on climate resilience, tune back to episodes two, three, and four of this podcast. Looking ahead, we move to revitalization. We'll be joined by several waterfront communities on December 2nd, and the first of those communities that we'll be hearing from today is Boston, Massachusetts. To register for our December 2nd event, please visit snepnetwork.org training and events. Or you can also find the link in the description of this podcast. For more information on the work we're doing in the series, tune back to episode zero. And to hear more about waterfront redevelopment, be sure to listen to each of our episodes on this topic as we have conversations with communities from across the country. Now, let's turn to one of America's greatest waterfront cities, Boston, Massachusetts. In the midst of a changing climate, Boston faces some of the most complex challenges of any waterfront city in the country. On top of particularly dramatic impacts from intense temperatures, severe weather events, and stormwater flooding, Boston faces the risk of up to three feet of sea level rise by 2070. And by 2100, sea levels could rise by seven to 10 feet. In response to these climate risks, the city developed its Climate Ready Boston plan. Climate Ready Boston is a dynamic approach that works in collaboration with Boston's citywide master plan to mitigate the impacts of climate change with tailored actions that will help the city adapt in the face of long-term climate impacts. And a key actor in the development of Climate Ready Boston was Magdalena Ayet, a member of the plan steering committee. Magdalena is the founder and executive director of East Boston's Harbor Keepers, a grassroots nonprofit founded in 2016 with a mission to foster sustainable communities, local resilience, and environmental stewardship. Magdalena started the Harbor Keepers with the goal of jumpstarting action at a critical intersection of two complex issue areas, climate adaptation and community engagement. With a diverse population that totals almost 700,000, it's crucial to ensure that community engagement in Boston is genuine and equitable so its waterfront policy solutions can be representative and just. In terms of demographics, Boston is 25% Black or African American, 10% Asian, and 20% Hispanic or Latino. Median household income in Boston is $66,000 per year, though a fifth of the city still lives in poverty. And nearly 40% of the city speaks a language other than English at home. Given Boston's large, diverse population, which makes up a tenth of Massachusetts total, the social components of the Harbor Keepers' work are especially meaningful. And while the Harbor Keepers is a small organization, its reach is broad. The nonprofit is active in Boston's climate planning and works diligently to engage those who otherwise might not be. The key to the Harbor Keepers' work is linking climate issues to people making the case for personal action and encouraging real community participation. In this conversation with Magdalena, we hear her discuss her work, some of the city's remaining vulnerabilities and risks, and how Boston has been combating climate change along the waterfront. Hi, Magdalena. This is Joanthro. Hi, Joanne. How are you? Great. And I want to thank, thank you for being part of this exchange. We're very appreciative. Yeah, no, it sounds really interesting. So I'm, I'm, you know, looking forward to learning more. I think it's it's a great endeavor. I, I like the project theme in terms of like doing the interchange of, you know, expertise between the two, well, various communities essentially. Um, so I like the project and that's why I've had a keen interest in understanding, you know, what communities along the coastal Cape Cod are doing to try and 
improve economic development, but also, you know, in terms of flood resiliency and climate adaptation and how to protect communities. Um, but and for us in the city of Boston, it's so much, it's so complex here. I mean, you have, I mean, we can probably have a conversation of three hours long, but um, we have a very small part to play as an organization. We're very small, very grassroots, um, but, you know, we've been sort of right there um, at the cusp of, of all this climate resiliency planning whatever I can share from our perspective in terms of working really closely with the communities in East Boston, you know, hopefully will be helpful to you. Well, terrific. So tell me a little bit about your role with Boston because I've uh, been reading on the website and I also spoke with a couple people in Boston um, and they say such great work that you're doing and as a grassroots organization, you know, but you play an essential role. So tell me a little bit about your role um, in the resilience realm. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the Harbor Keepers was founded with um, the mission to try and build some coastal resiliency along the East Boston shoreline, in particular because we all live, work, and play here. Like, we all are raising families here. We live here. We know the space very well. Um, but it's an island. It's geographically more isolated than other neighborhoods of Boston. It's more at risk on so many levels. Um, the history has a big role to play in terms of what's happening with, you know, the climate, um, you know, the, the climate change issue. Um, our organization, the Harbor Keepers, was founded in 2016, and you know, we just wanted to roll up our sleeves and say, okay, you know, the the it's, we thought it was moving really slowly in terms of creating, you know, resiliency and adaptation. It's just not moving fast enough for the communities to really catch up in the event of that big storm um, in relation to, you know, how fast, for example, waterfront luxury development is moving, right, and gentrification. So our organization was just like, you know what, let's just try and get some funding and do whatever we can to try to kind of move the needle a little bit and do some climate resiliency planning, do some waterfront advocacy, also sort of you know, roll up our sleeves and do some coastal stewardship, get the community engaged on these issues, you know, so that they're participating in the conversation, so that feel like they're empowered to actually make a change. Um, so, you know, we focus on four different areas, which is essentially, again, building the coastal stewardship. I mean, I think there's a lot of talk sometimes about climate adaptation, but they're leaving out the most important part, which is the people and the communities that live there and how they're engaging with them or they're not, right? If if the people in the community that are not that are living there are not engaged in the conversation, then it's being planned by others. And that's a problem. That's one of the things that we wanted to focus on. So, you know, we do a lot of more in-depth engagement, community engagement on coastal stewardship, which includes adults and youth as well, like we'll work with community centers and schools and partner with other organizations to try and, you know, you know, work collaboratively and engage others that may not necessarily be engaged in this issue on the stewardship. You know, connecting, I mean, it's, it goes back to basics, connecting people with the water and, and have, you know, and, and getting them connected with the water again, maybe they have in the past, maybe they haven't, to really understand the issues. Like even simple things like understanding what does it mean, you know, tidal fluctuations, what is a wicked high tide, you know, what does it mean what kind of shoreline is around us? You know, what is happening on that shoreline? Why is that relevant to my life? What happens, you know, what do I see when there's, you know, extreme precipitation? You know, what happens when there's, you know, a 100-degree day on a summer? 
why do we have urban heat islands, you know, things like that. Um, so that's one piece, coastal stewardship. The other piece is really, um, we're part of uh, other efforts, uh, especially the Bar Waterfront, um, you know, the advocacy group, the Waterfront Partners group, where we're engaged in these conversations at the at the planning stage. So, you know, they have a lot of influence in the city of Boston. There's a lot of sort of cross, um, you know, cross discussions, I, I guess you want to say, cross sex discussion, trying to find solutions to this problem. We're right there. You know, Harvard Keepers is there. Part of these conversations, bringing in that perspective from the community side, um, you know, agreeing or not agreeing, right? We're, we're there and we're honest about what we think can work and what we think might not work. Um, you know, also with the city of Boston, Climate Ready Boston, I was part of the steering committee for from the plan back in 2014. Phase one uh, happened a couple of years ago and they did um, sort of neighborhood scale coastal resiliency plans, like they did one for East Boston and Charlestown, they did one for, you know, Dorchester, downtown. Um, and now they're entering a second phase, so they got more funding and they're going to look at more of, um, they're going to do more deep-rooted flood analyses for certain parts of the neighborhood and try and see how they can build more climate resiliency measures, you know, that, that'll, that'll make the neighborhoods essentially more resilient. So what is, what are the biggest challenges you see moving forward? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what neighborhood. East Boston in particular, which is the neighborhood that I can speak for, is, you know, we are surrounded by water. We're an island, right? We were a series of five islands way back in the, you know, this was like six, seventeen, eighteen hundreds, and even up to the 1900s. Then it was still then. The airport, you know, was Governor's Island, Bird's Island, and that was sort of connected through fill, urban fill, and there was the whole urban filling process. Um, and so it created one big island. It was not a island and Breed's Island, and then they filled it in. They filled a series of creeks, actually, and rivers, and so it became one big East Boston island. The problem is that the infrastructure is just not catching up. So they're not, the city of Boston is doing some high-level planning. They have a plan in place, you know, they have a plan, but it's really hard for them to get to a point to implement that plan because they need, a, we don't have a funding structure, essentially, in the city of Boston and many cities across you know, coastal areas that essentially kind of take money from one source and it's enough money to implement, you know, climate resiliency measures that are adaptable to each neighborhood. And at the same time, you know, politics is in play. There's so much waterfront development happening in the city of Boston, which is, in my perspective, and many community advocates' perspective, is a big counterintuitive. So you're building and a shoreline that you have identified as being incredibly at risk, right? But yet there's a push and pull between, you know, city of Boston, I guess, development sector, right? Uh, well, the city of Boston slash development sector and the neighborhoods. Um, you know, there's people at risk, there's infrastructure at risk, there's transportation networks at risk from Bridges and tunnels to, you know, old housing stock is at risk and people are living them. You have immigrant populations that are more at risk than, you know, other populations. So you have all these factors and the city of Boston is just, they're not really able to move fast enough to get us to a point where we can say, oh, okay, 
we're resilient enough in this aspect, or we're not as resilient in this aspect, but we're getting there. There's just not enough investment money going into building these measures along the shoreline. So Climate Ready Boston Phase 2, I think, is trying to get to a better level. But again, this is just launched last week, and you know, a, a lot of eyes are like, looking to see you know what the analysis says and you know what kinds of measures the city is going to implement to actually get to a point where we feel like we're more resilient as a city i mean that's really like kind of well, heavy but, but it's really true and let me ask you how does covid play into this um you know the communities are reeling from the impacts uh, that covid has had on local budgets so how do you think um this you know, this planning process is going to be impacted. Will it, it remain a high priority for the city of Boston? I, I mean, COVID has impacted everything and everyone, right? Every sector. Um, it, it seemed at the beginning that it was going to put sort of the resiliency planning on the back burner, but fortunately, I don't think that that's happening. I'm glad to see the city moving forward on phase two um and sort of being proactive about continuing to do that resiliency planning and trying to find points of collaboration with other sectors and agencies and entities we see the state continuing to go forward actually that i feel like the commonwealth is recognizing that we're not doing enough and so they the for example the, the municipal vulnerability program the funding yeah. is continuous on that um you know always you know available in funding cycles where cities can apply continuously um, and cities have taken advantage of that, including, you know, the city of Boston. Um, COVID has, it seemed like it was going to kind of put resiliency planning in the back burner, but I think it did not. I think that we're continuing on that path of trying to find urban solutions to this problem. Um, you know, I, 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 I see it, me personally, as hand in hand. Like, we can't stop uh, trying to find the best climate adaptation measures for these coastal communities at risk, these urban communities at risk because of COVID. Like we have to continue to find solutions and we might even find, you know, because other, other things are on hold that we could push the needle a little harder, right? Or move it a little bit more. Um, so I, I don't see it as two, two separate things. The city of Boston is going forward with, with planning. I mean, there was a, a lull there for a while, but you know, they're going forward the DPA from the state is getting a boundary review here in East Boston, so they're going to be looking at um, designated poor areas. And so that means that the city is going to look at parcels of land that are within the designated port area, whether it makes sense to keep them in or take them out. Um, and that could open up some additional funding for, you know, for climate resilient measures. Right. Well, well, so let me ask you for communities like Wareham and others that we will have joining us on December 2nd, uh, you know, right. some big takeaways in this whole process that you, you've, you know, been there, done that, you're, you know, you continue to um, be at that grassroots level, which is such an important role, you know, right. what advice would you give to um, some of these communities? partaking in this leadership exchange? Yeah, I mean, the takeaways are that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to need to find points of collaboration. We continue to work together across sectors um, to try and figure out a funding structure, a continuous long-term funding structure for these communities without sacrificing. So, you know, we, 
you know, gentrification happens in many urban communities. And at times I feel like that is almost like the justification for building flood resiliency, but it shouldn't be that way. So we, we need to get ahead of the curve in the sense that we shouldn't be waiting around for private money to fund flood resiliency measures. So we need to continue on the MVP path, right? Finding, whether it's federal or state funding and city funding and private funding, so have a, a um, sort of a funding structure that will allow a continued flow of funds where it's not like one-time projects, right? And to make it holistic, I mean, keeping the communities engaged that live along, you know, these coastal areas that are at risk continuously. And when we say community engagement, we mean like deep-rooted community engagement. So there has to be an investment to do community engagement. It doesn't mean having, you know, one-time meeting to explain the project to, and you invite community members to attend and then you record their feedback. We're talking about planning from the get-go with key community stakeholders and having those really tough conversations and understanding what their needs are now and what the needs will be in the future. I'm not going to tell you that it's easy, uh, but some communities are doing it better than others. We are still kind of struggling a little bit in Boston, but we feel like we're moving in the right direction. Like the city of Boston now, you know, guarantees stipends paid for community advisory advocates to be part of the planning process, where they're compensated, where they're considered, and where they're valued, right? That's a step in the right direction. Um, and we'd like to see all the communities along the coastline Massachusetts do that. I don't know if they do. Um, but those are some some of the ideas. I mean, we can probably talk quite a bit about this. But I think cross-sector partnership building, relationship building, deep community engagement, um, continuous, right, not sort of one-off projects. Um, and then finding sort of funding structures that will continue to invest in underinvested areas, coastal areas that are at risk. Beautiful. I love it. And that's exactly what we'd love to dive a little deeper in on December 2nd and have that discussion. So thank you. This great. is a great, great bit of information. I appreciate it. What you're doing is just so important, um, the role you play. And I have to say, I don't necessarily find um, organizations like yours in all the places I work. So I'm I'm thrilled okay. to make the connection with you and learn more about your organization and the work you're doing because I, I do think it's a model that other communities absolutely need. Um, so thank you for being with us. No problem. I mean, if it's if it's a productive if it's productive to and adds to the conversation and it, and it sort of helps people understand, you know, an issue. Absolutely. Thank you so much well, for the opportunity. Thank you. Joanne. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. And you're going to influence others and the work you're doing. And I, I think that's pretty cool. Thanks again to Magdalena Ayed for joining us to talk about the exciting work that the Harbor Keepers are doing in East Boston. We heard Magdalena's insight on a number of different components related to climate adaptation. From the importance of leveraging collaborative relationships and the diversification of funding, to a commitment to combating social injustices. We look forward to having Magdalena join us on December 2nd as we engage communities from around the country on waterfront revitalization. For more information on the Harbor Keepers' work in East Boston, please visit www.harborkeepers.org. And that's a wrap on our first episode focusing on waterfront redevelopment. 
Be sure to listen to each episode as part of this theme to get a full look on how our case study communities are revitalizing their waterfront areas in the face of climate challenges. We hope you'll join us on Wednesday, December 2nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time for our third entry into the Climate Leadership Exchange series. We'll hear directly from Magdalena and other experts and leaders on waterfront redevelopment. To register for the webinar, please visit www.snepnetwork.org training and events. And finally, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast and spread the word to friends and colleagues about the exciting work going on in the SNEP network. Also, be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes as soon as they're ready and available. Until next time, I'm Kyle Gray, and thanks for tuning into this episode of the Leadership Exchange Podcast.